0: It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you'd open up your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we're doing the most important thing of the morning, which is to hear God's Word read and then hear God's Word preached. Uh, The issue, the topic that we're looking at in this text uh, is that of sanctification. And by sanctification just simply means this, it's how we cooperate with God as his grace works to transform our lives to be more like Christ. So God saves us through the gospel, but he doesn't just save us, he transforms us. The gospel actually starts to make us look different. And so we start to bear the resemblance of God's children. And that's a progressive work. We start to say, hey, you look like. Yeah, we, we start to look more and more like Jesus. And, and that's what we're talking about with this. And, and in sanctification, this growing to be more like Christ, we have personal responsibility. There's things that Scripture tells you to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's something you're told to do. You're told to renew your minds, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. There's personal responsibilities that God gives to us in this. But the point really this morning is this, that sanctification really is a group project. It's a team effort. We're meant to do this together. The Christian life is not meant to be lived independently. Now for Americans, that itself is counterculture. There's places in the world, they get community. They live community, it functions all the time. You know, they're out on stoops, they're out with one another. Americans sort of get in their homes, there's distance, and just the ethic of rugged individualism that we have, the independent spirit that we celebrate, well, that's not necessarily a biblical ethic. Scripture would tell us that we need one another. We're formed that way, to be the church, that, that each part needs the other part. And every part is essential. Not just those that are seen, but all parts. So, so it's a team effort. It's a group project. So I've entitled this morning's message, Sanctification A Community Project. And the point, simple although not always simple to apply, it's just we need each other other, to grow to be more like Christ. We need each other to grow more like Christ. So let's read these three verses in Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14, and have God's word counsel us this morning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession, confidence to firm to the end. We hold our original confidence, confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. God, we need each other to hold our confidence firm to the end, and that's what we want to do. So God, please help us this morning. Please help me to serve people whom you love, whom you set your affection on, whom you have died for to purchase as your very own people. Lord, help us this morning to hear your word, and not just to hear it and understand it, but to apply it. Lord, your word's always speaking. It's got your authority behind it, so it makes claims in our lives. And Lord, for any of that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit because we are weak people. So Holy Spirit, come and strengthen us to listen and apply to be transformed a bit more today. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things I love to do and had a great conversation with someone uh, after the first service is about hiking, someone who, he'd hiked the John Muir Trail, he's hiking other trails, and we, we were kindred spirits immediately. In fact, I could have talked to him probably for the rest of the morning and been somewhere else. It was, it was a wonderful time to talk. Um, one of the things I love to do is I love to hike. I backpack, I do this out west. So I've hiked in uh, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, California. I'll go out on long trips, extended trips. Um, I do day hiking as well uh, in different places, but I love getting out and seeing beautiful things of nature. Uh, There's just something of worship for me in that experience. Um, There's just that idea, when you put a pack on and you're gone for four, five, six days, and you're just away from the world. There's no news coming. My phone doesn't, I don't take my phone. So I have no phone interruptions. And just be out and see things that God made. And, and there's the experience of that is God made glorious things. They were glorious and beautiful before anybody saw them. So I've been up in, in mountains. Uh, I was just last year up in the Sierras. So we went to a lake about 11,000 feet high. Uh, high turquoise blue, look, Caribbean blue, beautiful. I thought, well, this beautiful lake must be swum in. So we sort of got some of the clothing off and into the lake we went, not realizing, well, this lake is fed by what? Snow. Um, so <laughs> and it's cold at night, so that was like 50-degree water. It was like almost walking on water. I skimmed across the lake. Um, but it was just beautiful, and there's this majesty of the mountains. And you see the glory of God. And I said, well, this was beautiful before anybody saw it because God just makes beautiful things. And then I thought of God's kindness. God, you love me personally. You let me be here to enjoy it. So there's glory and personal goodness all at once. So I love nature. I love the national parks. I've been to a lot of the national parks out west, uh, and I love those parks. All those parks, if you go to any national park, they're beautiful. They all have warning signs. You know, so that you can enjoy the parks. One of my favorite parks that I've ever visited, it's probably my favorite area in the country, is the Yellowstone-Teton area. So I I love that part. So I love Yellowstone, it's my favorite national park. It is awe-inspiring, it's diverse. So there are majestic mountains, uh, some of which I've climbed in Yellowstone, deep canyons, cascading waterfalls. Uh, Took my son, we were by the lower uh, Yellowstone Falls and the water's just, it's just rushing over. And you're right, right by the edge. And actually some of you are worried that I'm gonna fall in here. I heard somebody did that once which would have been really good to see. Um, so I'll be careful. Um, but we were right there, and I said, buddy, just look at this waterfall. And my son and I, we love roller coasters. I said, "I said, son, I think in heaven, we get in a raft, and we get to go over this waterfall, and that's going to be a blast because we're not going to die. We're gonna just, it's going to be thrilling adventure. And when we go down to the bottom, we're going to say, that's cool. Let's do it again, and we're going to run back up the waterfall and do it again. And and so there's these beautiful waterfalls in Yellowstone. Uh, And then there's these thermal areas that are just, they are otherworldly. The smells can be otherworldly. The sights can be otherworldly as they're spouting up hot water. Uh, They're beautiful. And then wildlife galore. And diverse wildlife, very diverse wildlife. But in that park, as in all parks, you'll find warning signs throughout the park. And those are there to ensure your enjoyment of the park and your safety in the park. So signs like this, stay on the boardwalks when you're around the hot springs. Don't walk off the boardwalk. Stay on the boardwalk, on the walkways as you're walking around these uh, thermal activities. Stay behind railings um, around waterfalls and cliffs. Seems to make sense, but people don't always do that. Here's a good one. You would think, yeah, don't hike where there's been grizzly activity. And then one, and I don't know if we have this for you or not, but it's one, it just says warning, don't approach buffalo. You know, and you would think, well, why do I need a sign telling me to do what only an idiot would do? You know, like, and, but people do that. And I was there one time where someone, a bison, 10 feet away, had walked up to and just kept getting closer and closer. And you're like, you're not supposed to approach those things, but they look dopey and they're sort of look slow. And this thing was just laying down. When that guy got in about ten feet, that thing jumped up, turned, pawed the ground, lowered its head. You know, it shook it, and, and that guy like just immediately retreated. Fortunately, was not chased. But every year, every year, people ignore those signs, and so people drowned because they go over a railing, they fall in a cliff. Some have been boiled in the hot springs, and there are gruesome stories. Some have been mauled by bears, and some have been gored by buffalo, by bison. They ignore the signs. We were at the Grand Canyon, uh, I think it was a week before, after someone had died, and there's signs all over, like, don't step out on the railings, because there's 1,000-foot drop-offs, and there was a person Who died? You know how they died? Taking a selfie. And just stepped back, leaned, and off they went. They died. Because they didn't heed the warning sign. Now you understand warning signs are there as an act of kindness. God warns us not to restrict us, but to protect us and to protect even our joy in life. Well, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, is a warning sign given by God to protect us. To ignore it is to willingly walk into danger. Now, this text doesn't just give us a warning. It also gives us guidance and a remedy to the danger. So two points this morning. First, hear the warning. So I want you to hear the warning that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Hear the warning. Look at the warning in verse 12. Take care. Warning. Take care. Let me grab your attention right now. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Remember, this isn't being addressed to Christians or followers of God at this point. Maybe some weren't, but it's addressed to Christians. It's a letter to Christians. So it's like, be careful. There's a warning here. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to what? Fall away from the living God. And here's the warning. Sin is serious. Sin is a dangerous companion Sins an imperious power that wants dominion. It's dangerous. The sign's here for a warning. Paul gives a similar warning in First Timothy chapter six, and this is a specific warning, so it's not just a general one. Here we have a specific warning. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy six, verse 10. "For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evils. Now here comes the warning. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Folks, don't love money. Don't put your trust in money. Don't set your eyes on money as the end all. Don't think that if you win the lottery, life's going to get better. And actually what's tragic is sometimes when you've studied people who've won the lottery and how their life has fallen apart, So don't set your, and what happens? Well, you could wander away from the faith. So there's a warning sign given about the love of money. There's a warning sign here that, oh, sin could happen and you could fall away from the living God. Sin is serious is the first warning. Second warning is this, sin is deceitful. So look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened, and we're we'll going to get to that, by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, we can read that. Sometimes what we do with Scripture, I think one of our mistakes with Scripture, is that we read things quickly, we assume we know what they meant, and we haven't stopped and thought about them. Right? So I don't want you to do that. I want to slow down now so we don't just read this verse fast. The deceitfulness of sin. Yeah, the deceitfulness of sin. Well, what do you mean by that? So let's slow it down. Why we don't want to read scripture fast is sometimes we, we can miss profound truth. I think one of the scriptures, probably one of the best, most well-known scriptures of all time, John 3.16. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home, probably the first verse I learned. And so we say it fast, right? It's at the back of every football stadium. It's on bridges. For God's love of the world. He gave his only begotten son. And who's ever believed in him? shall not perish but have eternal life. Yeah. Whoa, slow down, folks. Let's slow down. For God the creator of the universe, the holy one, the eternal one, the one who formed me in my mother's womb, this great glorious God loved the world, so loved the world, a world that was ignorant of him, rebellious to him, casual with him, ignoring of him. Yeah, this great God so loved that world that he gave his one and only son. A son that was precious to him. Where they had perfect fellowship with no No, he gave his one and only son. By the way, and in that, to die. For that world that was ignoring him and rebellious to him. So that anyone, whoever. Whoever. What about you? Are you in the whoever? Well, you don't know me. If you're here today, you don't know Christ. You're part of this whoever. Well, you don't know me. I'm a mess. Well, that's who God died for, messes, not people who had together. So to this God, this great God so loved this rebellious world that he gave us one and only son, that whoever, all-inclusive, whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have eternal life with him forever. Isn't that the way we want to read that verse? <laughs> not fast. Slow down when we read scripture together. So we don't want to be hardened by the deceitful of sin. So how is sin deceitful? Well, there's a couple ways. One, sin tells us it's no big deal, right? No harm, no foul. You didn't hurt anybody else. What difference does it make? Yeah, and after all, we're Christians. We have grace. You can always repent. And while that's a true statement, if I say it like that, that's a misapplied statement. That's not saying, oh, you can always repent. Oh, so therefore sin's not dangerous? Sin's not serious? Sin may not have an effect? Oh, no, it's, it is serious. So it's sort of, a, it, it deceives by it's not a big deal. Here's another way it deceives us. You can always stop. Right? You can sin up to a point and just stop. Probably some of you have been in that place where you're tempted and you're sort of walking a little bit, but you're like, I, I'm doing a little bit, but I don't want to go that far. Because if I go that far, that's scandalous. Right? If I go that far, now that's real sin. You know, anger, everybody gets angry. I don't want to haul off and hit someone. <laughs> you know, now I've crossed the line, right? I'm okay up to the line, but I don't cross the line. I can always stop. Think about how that functions. If has ever here struggled with any kind of addiction, think how that functions in addictions. I can stop. Nobody starts with, with some kind of addictive substance with, you know what, this morning I'm woken, woken up and I, I'm going to get hooked on this. That's probably going to cost me a lot of money, probably going to bring a lot of heartache to me. It might compromise my health and I'll probably lose family relationships. But I think it's a good idea. And you know, at any point, I can just put that away and just pick my life up and start over again and do well. Well, that's sin being deceitful. Ask anybody who's ever struggled with an addiction. Is it easy to give up? No. You know, think about anybody who's ever been struck with what's called a besetting sin, like a habit. I just, I can't, you know, and you've gone before God like it's me again and it's that again. Right? That can be very discouraging. It's me again and it's that again. You know what that speaks to? Sin's deceitful. It, It wants to be an imperious power. It wants dominion. It's one of the things that God breaks with the gospel and through Jesus Christ. He breaks the dominion of sin. But folks, let's not treat it lightly thinking we can always stop. Here's another way that, way that sin can deceive us. Live for the moment. Right, grab the gusto. I mean, really, it's what every commercial tells you. All that matters is now. That's sin. All that matters is now. Live for pleasures now. Live for the moment, just the moment alone. Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this, said the following. Trace the pattern of sin in the lives of the characters described in the Scriptures, right? God's given us Scriptures to learn from. We have examples we can look at, and we're supposed to discern stuff. Trace the pattern of sin in the lives of the characters described in the Scriptures. You cannot avoid noticing they did not see far enough or think clearly enough about their decisions and actions, from Eve in the Garden of Eden, through David on the rooftop of his Jerusalem palace, to Demas, the erstwhile companion of Paul, they all thought this, what now rather than what then? Now you might say, that's a great quote. Well, why is that quote true? That sin sin makes us short-sighted. Scriptural counsels us. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're in Hebrews, but if you just flip to chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, here's what it says there. Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see what he wasn't doing? He wasn't looking for the now. He was looking for the then. Think about what was offered him. You are a prince in Egypt. Do you know what that brings you? That brings you everything you can imagine and everything you can desire. With not only no consequences, affirmation. So man, you've got... This is the life for a young man. And you've got it all at your fingertips. And Moses says, no, that's living for now. I'm looking for my reward. Randy Alcorn once said, what's, uh, let's what's most important to us five minutes after we die be most important to us now. Because what are you going to have then? The clarity of what's most important. If you're a Christian, you're going to see the Savior. And here's what I guarantee you, guarantee You will never have a regret of choosing Christ and serving Christ. There may be sacrifices. It may be hard. It may cost you something, but you won't walk away. I have no regret in my life. I'll be 60 this fall. I have no regret of following Christ. Not one. Regardless of cost. I was a Christian school teacher for 10 years, made no money. I mean, made no money. It was a cost. I have no regret. You know where all my regrets are? Pursuing my own pleasures. Listening to my own desires sometimes. (laughs) Sin. Just being self-oriented. No regrets ever in following Jesus regardless of cost. Regardless of cost. You see what's ahead. So sin tells us, no, no, don't think about what's ahead. Don't think about the long tomorrow. Think about today and today alone. And here's probably the most dangerous and most serious way that sin deceives us. It says this, there's something or someone more enjoyable than God. There's something more enjoyable. If you had that, that would bring you joy that God can't bring you. It's always been there's something more enjoyable than God. Sin's deceiving. So sin's serious. It's a dangerous companion. Listen to the warning sign. Don't, don't step past. And sin's deceitful. It tells you it, you can control it. You can just get out of it. And you know what else? Sin hardens. Sin tends to harden us, doesn't it? Sometimes the first time you sin, I mean I the first time to my shame, Uh, First time I ever shoplifted, I was probably 11, 12. And I'm not talking about like this was not a crime spree and like there was not a, you know, not a gang. It was candy. You know, it was a candy bar. But I remember like just sweating bullets. You felt like the SWAT team was going to come in any moment. Okay, you know, against the wall, you. I know you're only 12. Just take you out. You know, but the candy bar. But, you know, after a few times doing that, I didn't think about it as much. No, it didn't lead me to, well, where did that lead you, Warren? It didn't lead me into a life of crime. <laughs> you know, thank God for that. So it's not like, and, and I went from there to then, you know, grand larceny, and I started stealing cars. And isn't the Lord good to save me? No, I didn't do any of that. God saved me for all those things. But, but sin hardens us. It dulls the conscience and we get good at developing excuses. Have you noticed that you don't have to teach anyone, if you have any children, you don't have to teach them to make excuses for their bad behavior, do you? No, I mean, that just comes naturally. You know, did you, no, my brother made me do it, my sister, well, you know, they're they're just blaming someone else. Okay, that's what comes natural. Nobody had to teach me to defend myself, to make an excuse. In fact, in my high school yearbook, To My Shame, actually when it was written, I thought it was to my glory and my my commendation. It says this in my high school yearbook about Warren Betcher. Can talk his way out of anything. And I thought, yeah. You know, it's me. (laughs) So let's have a conversation and I'm going to impress you. You You're going to try to find me, catch me. You're not going to catch me. I'm good at talking my way out of anything. Well, now we unpack that you know what that really says? saying? Warren Betcher can manipulate and lie and play the gray areas really well. That doesn't sound quite as good as can talk us about anything. Yeah, I was, a, I was a masterful manipulator. And guess what I brought into my marriage? So, honey, do you remember to take out the garbage? Yeah. Uh, is telling the truth what's going to drive me right now? We're manipulating because if I just say I forgot, I've got a conflict, <laughs> and I'm wrong. And I've got, am I going to be honest? Am I going to play? Well, you can't prove. I can play the gray. So, folks, I pray in those situations. I need God's help because I know what comes natural, and I know what comes supernatural. <laughs> I know who I am apart from Christ. I know who I am in Christ, and I know why I need Christ. So we can become, we can go from a tender heart to a casual heart, tender to God, and then all of a sudden casual with God to all of a sudden harden to God. We see this in the first sin. What does Adam do when God comes and confronts him to rescue him? He blames not just Eve. Well, well, God, it's the woman you gave me. You and I had a good thing in the garden, and then you brought this woman. And Think about where he goes from chapter 2. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Like, if we were to put that in modern vernacular, we'd all be probably embarrassed. You know, like, he's like, wow, wow, look at the woman I've made of all these animals. She is outstanding. This is great. By chapter 3, it's, you know, you gave her to me. Why'd you do that? It's your fault that I sinned. He went from a tender heart that loved God, enjoyed God, to all of a sudden a hard heart that actually blamed God. Folks, we see this in David. Think about David, the singer of songs, the writer of worship music, a man after God's own heart. You know, the king, and and from his line was going to come the Messiah. And what's David do at one point? He goes on a rooftop, he lost after another woman. He didn't wake up that morning saying, You know what? I think today I'm not going to war. I'm going to go on the rooftop, I'm going to lust, I'm going to commit adultery, I'm going to cover it up, try to cover it up, that's going to fail, I'm going to commit it, and then I'm going to commit murder. He didn't wake up that way. But that's what he did. Lust, adultery, try to cover it up, fails in the cover up, has the husband killed, takes the wife. And a year later, when Nathan comes to him, because he doesn't stop, you don't see any sense of conscience in David for the next year. So when Nathan comes to him and says, hey, there's a man that has a hundred sheep, but he went and took the man who had only one little lamb who he loved, and he took that lamb and killed it. And David's like, tell me who that man is. He's not going to live to the end of the day. And Nathan says, thou art the man. David's hard to become very hard. Now please see the grace of God that rescues a hard heart. God loved David. God loves you. God rescues us when correction comes. God loves us in these rescues. God loved Adam in the rescue. God loved David in the rescue. And God loves us in the rescue. But we don't want to ever treat sin casually. So sin is serious, a dangerous companion. Sin is deceptive, and sin hardens us. So two questions. Do you grieve over your sin or defend it? Do you grieve or defend? Second question is this. Do you resent questions when people come and ask you questions or correction? Do you resent questions and correction? Or do you see it as a rescue? Now, a lot of times this is going to happen in friendships and in family. What happened with the spouse? Sometimes your children come to you and say, "Ah, uh, Dad, you seemed a bit angry today. Do you feel God's rescue? Do you feel the Nathan part of your son at that point coming to you and saying, Dad, you're you're walking a dangerous path. Dad, you know, thou art the man. Or are you like, son, I'm the dad. You're the son. Quiet. Nobody questions me. Oh, okay. That's just killing the prophet. God wants to rescue us. Do you see God's rescue? How do you respond to it when people are pursuing you? Second point, so that's the warning. Let's not miss the warning. Let's remember why the warning's there as an evidence of God's grace, as an evidence of his love for us so that we get to enjoy the world, not be ruled and ruined by it. Second, embrace the remedy. Now this is not the only remedy, but is an essential remedy. The remedy is this, and we find it in verse 13. But exhort one, one another every day, as long as it's called today. Exhort one another. Maybe your scripture says encourage one another. It's, it's the idea that relationships are vital to Christian growth. Relationships are vital to Christian growth. Now, this is an essential remedy. It's not the only remedy. What's essential for your growth? Well, I think it's not the preacher, but it is sitting under the preached word. That is essential for your growth. So, In one sense, the most important meeting of this church in the course of the week is the Sunday meeting where you worship together. You sing praises to God, but you're singing truth to one another. It's very important to have corporate worship together. It's very important to sit under the preaching of God's Word together. It's very important that every day you're opening God's Word. It's God speaking to you. Words of life. That's important. And relationships are important as well. So it's not the only remedy but it is an essential remedy. Relationships are vital to Christian growth. Listen to what John Calvin said about this. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. The writer of Hebrews therefore wishes them to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into their heads and by his falsehoods lead them away from God. You know what he's saying? We need one another. Because what? Oh, my faith. It, it It might get numb. My love might grow cold. I need other people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Pastor during the time uh, of Hitler, he was in opposition to Hitler, he was in the confessing church, so not the church that got co-opted by the political party of their day, but a church that stood apart from all that, saw their citizenship in heaven, saw their prophetic call of the gospel in their their world and in their country. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was eventually arrested by Hitler and killed right prior to the liberation of Germany. And he says the following, the Christian needs another Christian. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged for by himself he cannot help himself. This is what these men are saying to us. Folks, being alone in your head is a dangerous place to be. Your mind is not a beautiful thing. (laughs) It's a mess. It's convoluted. It will believe its own lies. You need someone else to speak into your mind. This goes against everything. I'm a private person. If you know, I'm a person like, I want to process this and I want to process it alone and come out and give you my answers or give you what I, you know. But I I don't do that well. I need people to speak into my life. And I'm grateful for the people and men I have in my life that do that. And my wife who does that better than anyone. And my children who now are doing that for me. We need one another. Relationships are vital. So do not stay in your head alone. See, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews, you know what they were doing? They were starting to drift. And that drift of meaning together was becoming a habit for some of them. We don't need anyone. I got the Lord. Why do I need people? Me and the Lord. The Lord said, well, yeah, it is you and me, but I'm going to speak to you through others. And by the way, they need you to speak to them as well, and I will use you. So being alone in your head is a dangerous place. This church was drifting from being together. So whether it's persecution can drift you from being together, whether it's the Lord's about to return, that can, oh, well if he's gonna return, why be together? No, be together, be together. Folks, preaching and knowing sound doctrine are essential. It's why this church preaches the way it does. Why are you going through 2 Corinthians? Because it's God's Word. You need all of God's Word. Why do you read different books of the Bible? Because we need the whole genre of the Bible. We need all the literature of the Bible. We need all of it. So that's why the church does Why do we talk about doctrine? Doctrine seems to divide people. Can't we just love Jesus? Well, yeah, except you've got to understand doctrine to do that well. <laughs> you want to love the Lord with all your mind, too, not just heart and feelings, but informed, engaged. So that's why this church preaches the way it does, wide emphasis is doctrine the way it does. Those things are essential, but they aren't enough. Your devotions is essential, but it's not enough. Sanctification is a group project. We need one another to grow to be more like Christ. Folks, individualism and isolation are unbiblical and dangerous. They are both unbiblical and dangerous. R.C. Sproul, dear brother went to be with the Lord last year said the following, it is both foolish and wicked to suppose we will make much progress in our sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the local church. Yeah, we need one another. So we're called to live life together, but if we're honest, right, there's challenges that can cause us to drift. So what are challenges you face in living life together? There's clearly a love and affection for one another. But what challenges are there? I'm assuming there's some challenges if your church is anything like our church, right? I think the suburbs presents a challenge, right? You're all from different communities. you do not all live within two blocks of each other. My son's planted a church in South Philadelphia. They planted for a number of reasons. One, to believe in church planting, to bring the gospel into South Philadelphia, all those calls. But people who went there like, well, why are you going? Man, we want to live in community. They all live within an eight block radius. They all walk to the same park. They, they don't have to get in their car to ever meet somebody from the church. They love the community side of that. It's almost like living in a cul-de-sac. Now, they're an outreaching cul-de-sac. They're inviting other people into it, but they live in a community. It's easy. Guess what? Suburbs is harder. It's harder. i got to drive to see another believer. Think about your small groups you have. We call ours community groups. We've called them home groups, care groups, now we call them community groups, and we'll probably call them something else in the future. We have our small groups. Here's what I'm like, oh, at the end of a day, a long work day, I've been up early, worked hard, and I'm home, I've eaten dinner, dinner's resting, and I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, small group, oh, I don't want to go to small group folks, and I lead our small group. (laughs) I don't want to go to my small group, and I lead it. I'm like, I don't want to go out tonight. I'm tired. And I don't, folks, I think there's rare time where I'm like, I can't wait for small group tonight. Oh, my heart's burning. I've got a message for the folks. I'm going to be mutually encouraged. I'm going because if I don't go, <laughs> it's going to be obvious I'm not there. <laughs> and the Lord loves me enough Says, man, that guy's so immature. I'm going to put him in charge of the group. Otherwise, he might not go. But if he's in charge, he has to go, mm-hmm. and he's that weak that I've got to put him in charge of it. Now, when I come home, I'm always like, "I'm so glad I went." I'm not sure that I ever want to go, but I'm always so glad that I went, folks. You think about it this way: when you think about community group, whatever your small group is, so does a small group meeting change your life? Rarely, I would say. Maybe you would say, "I remember meeting." And wow, did that. And you have those dramatic moments. But most of it's probably not. I can't remember most of them. But I want you to think about life this way. Life is not usually leaps and bounds. We're not supermen, right? We're not super Christians. We don't leap sin buildings in a, in a single leap. You know, we don't grow <laughs> in a bound. We're not faster than a speeding bullet. You know what we are? We take little steps. Here's community group. See, I'm not, I'm not growing like this. But I went to a community group last week, and then I went to one in, you know, next week, and then I went to one 10 months from now, and then I went to one a year, you know, for a year I've been going. And then I went to another one for two years, and now I've been going to a group for three years, and now I've been going to a group for four years, and now I grew for five years, and six years, and seven years, and ten years. What sustains me? I don't know. I just keep going. And now it's been 11 years. Huh, I'm not the Christian I was 10 years ago. I, I'm more transformed in the image of Christ. How'd that happen? I don't know. It wasn't one meeting, it was a hundred. And I just changed little by little, imperceptibly. You know, sometimes at conference, you take a step. But you know what happens even if you get a step at the conference next week, ladies? After you get the step, and after God imparts something big... You know what you're going to do? Little steps. (laughs) What what are the truths you're going to hear next week that you're going to have to apply for the next year? And you're going to to be encouraged to apply. Little steps. It's not one meeting that will change your life. I guarantee you a hundred will. That's what keeps us going. You know why you have small groups here? Not because they're popular in America today. It's not because of how you build a church. It's not because of church management. Because there's convictions that drive this church that say we believe life's meant to be led together because scripture tells us that. There's 31 in others. And we're going to make sure that function in us. So we're creating a structure to help that function. Now we're not depending on that structure because there's also organic relationships that should be happening all the time. But we're going to actually structure something that tries to help that to happen. And there's a scriptural conviction that drives it. It's why I keep going to community group. Not because it's my preference. It's because it's my conviction. You want convictions to drive you. So folks, exhort one another every day. So suburbs can get in the way. Busyness can get in the way. Wait, Jobs are busy. I know few people that work 40-hour work weeks. It seems like everybody works more. But that can get, you know, busyness can get in the way. Kids' activities can get in the way of church commitments, can't they? I mean, I remember growing up. Here's what little lives were for me. There's your glove, go up to the park, I'll see you in a three, a few, three hours. And you just went. Now it's, well, there's a travel team, there's a coaching clinic, there's a hitting clinic, there's this, there's that, there's, a, there's just so many things going on. Now, I don't want you hear what I'm saying, like, oh, wow, you're just bashing sports right now. I grew up playing sports, I love sports. My son, I love Saturdays, go and watch my, little, my son play Little League basketball, baseball, baseball. Loved it. And then he played football in the fall, loved it. Saturdays, loved it loved watching, loved enjoying, loved being with the people, loved it. But here's what we didn't do. That will never violate the priorities that drive us. And priorities can be misled through children's activities. See, here's what I thought. Just because my child's good at something, and my one son was very good at sports, very good, so just because he's good, has talent, and he has opportunity, that doesn't mean I have to let that all get expressed to its nth degree. It's very hard for parents to go, oh, I'm depriving. I'm not giving them my opportunity. Why? Give them as many opportunities as you can, but never to where they violate the priorities of what you believe. So we were very clear with our coaches. He doesn't play Sunday mornings. He doesn't practice Sunday mornings. I'm a, I was a coach, so I'm a committed guy. You join a team, you're on the team for, like, life. You don't miss anything. I don't care what you're playing, not playing, you're there an ethic that drives me. But I was like, and he'll be there at 1205, not before. So I think in all the years he played, I think he missed maybe two Sundays for championship games. I was like, no, we're, folks, sports is a gift. I thought it was a wonderful gift. It was a wonderful opportunity. It was a great memory for my family. But my son's soul is eternal. It, lo- it will live forever. I don't want him to love the wrong thing and chase the wrong thing. And I don't want to be a dad that would say, here's what's more important. <laughs> your success is more important than your soul. Your soul's of utmost importance. Now, if you start with my illustration, you can talk to me afterwards. But let's ava- make sure we're valuing the right things: suburbs, distance, busyness, things like pride, I don't need anybody, fear, people have hurt me in the past, disappointment. Relationships do disappoint. I don't know any real relationship doesn't have disappointment. So if you're married here today and you've been married longer than five minutes, you know, this wasn't your marriage. You know, you had a disappointment in your marriage. You're like, well, that's because I have a real relationship and we have to work through it. That's okay. There can be selfishness. But listen to God's word. Exhort one another every day. Consider in Hebrews 10, consider how to stir one another up, be intentional and thoughtful, how to stir one another up to uh, good deeds, to faith and good deeds. This is what you're building in your small group ministry. It's face-to-face ministry where we give and receive encouragement, where we apply God's Word, where we actually fulfill what it says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. And then here, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And times, I'll ask people that. How are you fulfilling that command? Because that command seems to be two sides. One, you have burdens that you're not intended to carry alone. Who's helping you? And guess what? Someone else has a burden that they're not meant to carry uh, alone. How are you helping them? I can't look out over an audience like this and say, there's somebody here that's probably discouraged today. Some of you are abounding in the Lord. Some of you feel like, oh my, this is not a a good day. Well, that means you need help. So someone wants to help you, and then someday you're going to need to help people. We have this ministry, right? You're in 2 Corinthians. With the comfort we've received, we comfort others. It doesn't stop. It goes out. It's what you're building. So here's some questions to consider as we prepare to close. Are you plagued with discouragement or doubt today? In other words, do you, and here's how you can make me think about that. Do you walk around with a low-level sense of guilt or unbelief? I know God's good. There's good people in this church. I love this church, but you know what? I'm just a second-class child. I just don't know if God, if you knew me, Warren, uh, you know, you wouldn't be real sure about God's excitement about me or how God might use me. So are you plagued with discouragement or doubt? That Do You sort of walk through life with a low-level sense of guilt or unbelief. If you are, you're not in unusual company. Second, are you comfortable with complacency? You know, complacency. In other words, zeal was a thing of the past for you. There was a time when you were first a believer, you were zealous for God, but now you've matured less zealous. You know, one of the things I think about with aging, again, turning 60 this, this uh, fall, we did a class for those over 50 in our class. We call it a prime time. You're entering the prime time of your life. And, and one of the goals in that was, we were talking about worldliness, and usually when you say things like worldliness, people right away can go to teens or younger people, like, oh, they can be worldly and you know, chasing things in the world. You know where there's a message that nobody's even barely challenging? It's worldliness among Those over 55. The ethic is this it's your time now. It's your money. You paid your dues. Your salary's probably higher. You got less responsibilities. You got more time, more money, more freedom, and you've done a lot of work. So it's your time now. You see it on bumper stickers. It's my time. See it on lifestyle choices. Folks, it's God's time. We don't want to lose our zeal for the Lord. If anything, Even more so, we know God longer. I remember hearing a guy pray at a wedding. He was 93. I've never seen a wedding where the highlight of the wedding was a prayer. Usually it's the vows, you know. It was the prayer. This guy, 93, prayed to open the wedding. And I was like, whoa. I thought, you know what, I can't pray that prayer. Not because it's theologically better than I can pray. He's just walked with God for 85 years. I haven't. He knows God in a way that I just don't know yet. He has, and I like, I just heard a man pray who'd been walking with the Lord for 85 years. Lord, give me a voice like that. Folks, our zeal should not change. Our energy may change as we're getting older. We need more of a nap, right? We don't have the same energy, but our zeal shouldn't change. And so we called, and I was glad we had, 60-some people over 50 years old coming out to those meetings for six weeks because we talked about how do we want to live a zealous life to our last breath how do we want to invest in the game and not say it's their turn to do the hard lifting the heavy lifting now, actually we have more free time, we can probably do some things that we couldn't do when we had small children we can actually do more and that's how we talked that's how I want my last breath to be it'll be a weak breath I'm hoping for clarity of mind, I'm praying for that It'll be a weak breath, but I want my last breath to say to my kids and grandkids, "No regrets, fall on Jesus, fall him with all your heart." That's what they'll remember from Dad and Papa. Papa said, "Live for Jesus." At the end, so folks, are you comfortable with complacency? Is your zeal going? Have you grown casual with sin? Are you avoiding scandalous sin, but you're okay with the respectable sins that Jerry Bridges would identify? Has your joy in Christ diminished or grown cold? Are you comfortable being anonymous, right? You're in a larger church, two services. I can float a little bit. Being comfortable anonymous is a dangerous thing. Folks, all those things would speak of your need for other people in your life. And if you're not experiencing them, someone around you probably is. And they need your encouragement in their life. God gives us brothers and sisters to help us to grow and to help us finish well, to hold our original confidence firm to the end. Listen to this final quote from Richard Phillips from his commentary in Hebrews. He says the following, Christian fellowship, including prayer, Bible study, and meaningful friendship is a great bulwark against sin's deception. In such company, the arguments of sin lose their force, and we are strengthened in faith and obedience. Our goal is to persevere to the end and enter into God's rest. And our strategy is mutual watchfulness. What a worthy cause that is. It's worth the inconvenience. And it is inconvenient. Church schedule is inconvenient in a sense. But it's worth the inconvenience. It's worth giving up some leisure time. It's worth real sacrifice. And we'll repay the dividends of eternal life are you embracing this are you embracing this as god's word as god's call for you and god's care for you and are you embracing your responsibility to care and watch over other souls as well folks we need each other to grow and finish well let's pray Lord, I thank you for the grace that is in this church, a love for the gospel that's in this church, a love for one another that's in this church. Lord, I pray that you would grow their love, that it would never grow cold. That As people touch the people of this church, they would say, oh my, how they love one another. And Lord, love would have action, would have intentionality, not just a sentiment behind it. Love that would be enough to reach out and even be a bit uncomfortable at times. Love that will work through conflict and not just be offended. Love that will sharpen us to love you more. And God, may we see the relationships that you've given us to one another as a means of protection from you. As a means of growth from you. As a gift from you. As a call from you. So may we exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that we would follow Jesus wholeheartedly. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.